Hello and welcome to FuturePod. I'm Peter Haywood. FuturePod gathers voices from the international field of futures and foresight. Through a series of interviews, the founders of the field and emerging leaders share their stories, tools and experiences. Please visit futurepod.org for further information about this podcast series. Today, our guest is Zia Sada. Zia is a London-based scholar, award-winning writer, cultural critic, and public intellectual who specialises in Muslim thought, the future of Islam, future studies in science, and cultural relations. Prospect Magazine has named him one of Britain's top 100 public intellectuals, and the independent newspaper calls him Britain's own Muslim polymath. I first encountered Zia as editor of Futures, our flagship journal, which was a position that Zia took up in 1999. His books and publications are too numerous to mention, but I'll just drop a few names that are some of my favourites. There were Cyber Futures, Politics and Economy that he wrote with Jerry Rabbits in 96. Of course, Why Do People Hate America in 2002 and Islam, Postmodernism and Other Futures, 2003. But Zia is more than just a writer and a scholar. I'll include in his brief, he's a TV megastar, travel journalist, and I'm sure a few more things that he'll tell us about. Welcome to FuturePod, Zia. Thank you for having me. Oh, I'm uh, delighted that you would take some time to talk to our little podcast. Pleasure is all mine. It's so good to have Futures community talking to each other and listening to each other. Yes, well, as you know, it's a community that started and depends on quality conversations. Indeed. So, Zia, first question is that the guest gets to tell their story of how they found their way into the futures community. So what's the Zia story? Actually, the Zia story goes way, way back to the late 70s. And it was a time when I was working for New Scientist. I was thinking about uh, the future of science in Muslim societies where science was conspicuously lacking. And I was reading lots and lots of Islamic scholarship, classical works, and, uh, you know, all variety of uh, Islamic thought emerging during that period. Uh, And I noticed that there was a conspicuous absence of the future. Uh, Most of the works I came across were about history or the present crisis, problems with Muslim societies, crisis of Muslim mind, etc. And there was virtually nothing about the future. So basically, I thought, well, as an area I should cover myself. And I started writing a book. It was called The Future of Muslim Civilization. But I knew nothing about future study itself. And uh, as I was writing, it became obvious to me that I needed to discover something about future studies, really learn as much as I could about futures uh, before I actually try and complete the book. Uh, I started talking to various people. I spoke to the then uh, my mentor, Jerry Ravitz, who's a philosopher of science, also a historian of science. Jerry, of course, knew nothing about future studies himself, even though he's, you know, he was a, a leading light in science policy during those days. But he did know somebody called Hazel Henderson. He said that I met a person called Hazel Henderson who's written a 
book called Creating Alternative Futures. Yes. So I got hold of the of the book. And when I was at the New Scientist office one day, I discovered that there is a conference in Canada, I think it was in Toronto. So it was something like Canadian Futures Network and, and Hazel Henderson was going to be speaking there. So I persuaded my New Scientist editor to give me some money to go and cover that conference, even though New Scientist did not understand future, did, they did not cover anything related remotely to do with, with futures or future studies. But anyway, I persuaded the, the editor to buy me a ticket to, to Toronto. And I went there to the conference. And in fact, Jerry had told me that I would have absolutely no problem in spotting Hazel Henderson because she will be the tallest person <laughs> in the conference. And so I remember so well that when I went there, I just looked over the crowd and there was this head sticking out. <laughs> and it was Hazel. And I went straight to her and I said, you are Hazel Henderson. I am Ziyabin Sadar and we have a mutual friend called Jerry Ravitz. And she said, yes, he mentioned me to you. Ah. So I just we immediately developed a relationship. And fortunately for me, Hazel uh, adopted me as her young brother. And <laughs> I looked up to her as my elder sister. And she kind of guided me immensely. I mean, uh, within a year, I was a member of the World Futures uh, Federation, thanks to her. I was attending Futures Conference. I was reading almost anything I could possibly lay, lay my hands on. And at the back of my, my mind was that I had to finish this book, uh, The Future of Muslim Civilization. So I was kind of devouring everything. And basically, I finished the book around 78. It came out towards the end of 79. And is regarded as, by some Muslim scholars, is regarded as one of my classic work, mm. because it's basically the first work which looks at the Muslim civilization from the future's perspective and, all, and offers a totally different vision of the Muslim, what the Muslim civilization should be. I need yes. to say it is my vision, and I argue it as powerfully as I could in those days. And the book has lasted to this day, and it started my journey in future studies. And since then, uh, basically, I have never left, to be quite honest. Um, I feel very much part and parcel of the Futures community, specifically the World Futures Studies Federation, where I've been a very active member, an executive member as well. I have drafted a new constitution, uh, although I'm slightly disappointed by the Federation at the moment, but I am at heart very much a, a Federation person. Uh, we just interviewed one of our ex-presidents. I've just done a podcast with Fabienne. Oh, yes, yes. Fabian is one of our ex-presidents. Yes. Uh, yes, indeed. So I encountered you as a young student, as the editor of Futures Journal. What's your view of the field? Because I know you do have some very uh, clear ideas about futures as a field, both in terms of what it is and what it is about. Uh, yes, I mean, I think one of the questions you ask people is, what is your favourite method? Uh, you know, what is kind of what method you use in your practice. And my feeling is that methods can be turned into ideology. Right from the beginning, when I was doing my initial futures work, I noticed that people hooked on to a particular method and then that method became future studies for them. Yeah. Right. For me, a method must be in conformity with the problem you're trying to solve or with the exploration you are undertaking. So a method and, and what you're actually trying to do go 
go hand in hand and you need different methods for different problems, right? Uh, what kind of concerned me early on in my work was the fact that a lot of the work I was seeing was essentially projecting using trend analysis, emerging issues, etc., projecting the present into the future, extrapolating from trends, and then saying this is what the future is going to be like. Uh, this kind of work was particularly coming from the United States, where there was an obsession with technology and how technology is leading us uh, into a kind of bright new future. Just after I started my term as an editor of futures, I noticed that we were getting lots and lots of paper papers. We were just basically extrapolating the present into the future, and then arguing this is what the future is going to be like. And I was pretty concerned and somewhat disturbed about this. And then by chance, I was approached by Ellen Massini, one of the doyens in the futures field. I, I looked up to her. You know, she was my one of my guides and inspiration, and she was editing a special issue of general sociology devoted to future studies. And she said, "Ask me." She asked me to write an article what I thought of future studies. So I thought, "What should I write?" And eventually, I wrote a paper called "Colonizing the Future," mm -hmm. where I argued that the methods of future studies are actually being used as instruments to colonize the future. In a sense, what you're doing you're saying the method is the truth, mm. right? And also the method is actually revealing what the future is going to be like. And to some extent, this becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. Um, and that, to me, was a way of colonizing the future. It is a way of foreclosing the future. Nowadays, people talk about singularity and how, we, how computers and artificial intelligence are merging with human body and human mind, and we are all going to be in some sort of singularity nirvana. That, in a way, is colonizing the future. Yeah. Because you are trying to say, this is how it is going to be. And for me, future is not a priori given. Future is shaped by human agency. It's what we do today that determines what will happen in the future. So I wrote this article called Colonizing the Future. And it caused a great deal of stir in the general sociology, and eventually it was rejected. They did not want to publish it uh, because they thought I was uh, basically, you know, dissing the, the field. <laughs> it was, of course, not my intention. My intention was to point out that there are problems within the field. In yeah. fact, there are problems in any discipline, right? And the way the discipline progresses is by self-criticism. And I thought that that kind of self-criticism was, was, was necessary. But anyway, as an editor of Future, I had no problem in, in getting the article published in my own journal. It was physically <laughs> refereed. It was physically refereed. And it's become a, one of the well-cited papers. So I do not believe in a single methodology. I no. do not use a single methodology in any of my Future's work. I think a methodology has to fit the need, right? What are you trying to do? And once you determine what your goals are, then you can decide which methodology is the best methodology for you to use for, you know, for your purpose. I might ask you then to move to, to question two, because as you said, the methodology has to fit the task. Or the question. Mm. So, do you want to talk through an inquiry that you have uh, conducted and 
and what method you chose to actually match that inquiry? This was a question I had to, I had to ask myself, for example, uh, when I was uh, writing The Future of Muslim Civilization. What method would I use? And it became pretty obvious to me that visioning is the method. So the, the book presents uh, a vision, but it's, as I said, it's a personal vision. But then the vision is really sketched out in great detail. Right, what the science and technology will look like in a future Muslim civilization, what the political system will look like, uh, yep. how do we ensure that history and tradition remain intact within the Muslim civilization. So all of that kind of became part of part of the inquiry and eventually part of the book. And the, the follow-up book I wrote, Islamic Futures, The Shape of Ideas to Come, was somewhat different. And uh, there I used uh, because I was critiquing what is going on now. So yeah. what, I, what I thought was the best method will be, will be essentially trend extrapolation and then paint a picture looking from the future of the present. So that book deals with a number of new ideas, or in fact, they were new during the 70s and 80s when I was, the book, I was writing the book, new ideas that were emerging like Islamic economics, Islamic science, issues relating to Makkah and Medina, so, for example, I looked at Islamic economics and I, I extrapolated what Islamic economics will look like. Uh, this is, say, in the 1780s, will look like in 20 years' time, uh, you know, around 2000, 2010. And I got more or less quite an accurate prediction, if you like, although I don't do predictions. Yep. But uh, I argued that Islamic economics will end up looking like conventional capitalism. Mm. Um, and it has turned out to be more or less true in a sense. Uh, I was, uh, I also edited a journal called uh, Critical Muslim. And for that, uh, we did a, we did, we did an issue uh, recently on education. And I asked uh, an old friend of mine who is a pioneer in Islamic economics, he's been doing Islamic economics for 50 years. I asked him more or less what you ask people, you know, tell me your life story. So I said, what is your life story relating to Islamic economics? You know, tell me the 50 years of Islamic economics that you've done. And so he, he sent a lovely, lovely article, which ended by saying that, that essentially what, what I have been doing as, a, as an Islamic economist is reinventing capitalism using Islamic law. Right. And I, I remember, actually, that was the last sentence of the article I, I wrote to him, I said, do you really want that last sentence? Shall I edit it out? He said, no, mm. no, that is my conclusion. Yeah. So I managed to get it right. And they, for example, they, uh, in the same book, I look at uh, Makkah and uh, uh, extrapolate what Makkah will look like in 20, 30 years time. And I come up with two main scenarios. And one scenario was that it will look like a, a huge shopping mall, uh, complete with a uh, ugly clock tower and most of the spirituality from the city will be drained and you would not be able to distinguish between the holy city of Makkah and Houston, Texas. That's right. Which is exactly what, exactly what happened. Out to be. Yeah. But the two books are totally different because one uses visioning and the other uses extrapolation scenarios, future perspective. Um. I'm going to ask you a question about method because when you came to Australia and you uh, and you took some classes for Richard Slaughter, yes, uh, you taught us a very simple method, and I'm going to remind you what that method that you 
that you gave us and hopefully you might um, explain it to the uh, listeners. And you said to ask three questions of yes. any idea about the future. One was, where is it going? The second one is, does it make sense? And the third question was, who benefits? Who benefits, yes. Yes, I remember. Yes, I mean, questioning is, a, in my opinion, a very strong method and often overlooked. In my opinion, people do not really know how to ask questions. And you have to ask appropriate questions. And sometimes, of course, a question is not a question. You know, if the question Im implies a, a, an automatic answer, then you're not really ask, asking a question. No. Uh, so, so for me, questioning is a very important method. And it's not just in future studies. I also use it in my other work, in my Muslim scholarship, for example. I also ask similar questions. You just pick up any one of my articles and you will see these questions in action. Yeah. See, for example, uh, one of my papers, the, the namesake, which is about uh, future studies and where future studies is going. You know, what is, what do we call it? Do we call it futurism or futurology or perspective or what? I mean, I ask these same questions, you know, at the end of the day, who benefits from what do we call future studies? You know, where is, where is it going? How important it is? Uh, that's, in a sense, I think this comes very, very naturally, naturally to me, how I do my, my intellectual work, and I've just brought it to, uh, to future studies as well. You also said, and I'm going to be reminding you of these things because they were very, very powerful things that you said to me, if Futures has a job, then it's to put its foot on the rotten structure of Western capitalism and give it a good shove. Absolutely, and it has failed to do that. When I was talking about colonizing the future, that was kind of something at the back of my mind. What is the function of future studies? The function of exploring the future is to keep it open, to keep it multiple, to keep it pluralistic, to bring in you know, marginalized voices. Uh, we use the term polylog, uh, meaning that it's time to move beyond dialogue and bring in other different voices, different disciplines. One of the reasons why I have I've been against future studies being a discipline as such is because it is by nature an interdisciplinary, transdisciplinary, and multidisciplinary exercise. Yep. You see, and disciplines create boundaries. They yep. create mythology around them. I mean, take accounting. I mean, you know, you have to spend years to become an accountant, but most of the time, you, what you're learning, amongst other things, is the mythology of accounting. All that, yes. all the language. Yes. That is designed to keep the outsiders outside or uh, economics. You know, the way we teach economics is very much as not just as a kind of semi-objective science, but also as the mythology uh, that we then buy. And what I don't want future studies to do is to become a, become a mythology. One of the things, for example, that disturbs me about Aust Australia and a great deal of future work that is done in Australia is that CLA has become an ideology. <laughs> it is not just a methodology, but yeah. it's an ideology uh, in the sense that almost everybody who comes out of uh, Australian futures community seems to be doing CLA, yeah. which suggests to me that they have not looked at the world in a different way. They just know one way to look at the future, yeah. right? It's, which again is, to me, is diminishing the field. It's not, it's not enhancing the field. We need a plethora of methods. We don't want uh, any particular method to be 
dominant, if you like, uh, or any particular method to define the field. We are by definition interdisciplinary in the sense that we bring in methods from numerous disciplines to examine how the future could possibly unfold. You know, we were kind of uh, just earlier on talking about colonizing the future. I mean, methods themselves, you know, then become an instrument of how that colonization is done. So if everybody in Australia is just doing CLA, then they are just colonizing the future in a particular perspective. Yeah. Right. Uh, and that to me is a, is, is, is a, is a, is a, a tragedy. Um, when I was editor of the future, uh, every time a newspaper came from Australia, I shuddered uh, uh, <laughs> whether it was CLA or not. I mean, as an editor, I was duty bound to send it to referees and all that. Yep. Uh, but if a paper came that was not about CLA from Australia, I jumped with joy. <laughs> At least they're doing something different in, in, yep. in a sense. So I think it's not just that we need to keep the keep the future itself open and pluralistic, we need to keep future studies also open and futuristic, yeah. which means we need to employ as many different methods as we possibly can. From a very simple method, the method of questioning that you mentioned, that, that, I, that I talked about in Australia, to highly sophisticated, highly sophisticated computer-based modeling, AI modeling, all varieties of, of complex uh, methods. So we should be open to all, and it is the inquiry that decides which method do we use, right. because that is, is the essence of the field. Question three, this is the citizen of the world. This is not necessarily, you know, the public intellectual and, and the scholar, but the way that you are making sense of the emerging futures, the particular yes. things that are getting your attention that you might like, but they certainly are causing you to think. What is so, you know, uh, how does Zia uh, make it, sense of the future as it emerges? Yes, um, this is a very interesting question. And it's, uh, it's, it's a question that I asked myself uh, almost uh, seven, eight, nine years ago when I decided uh, that I'm going to uh, leave the editorship of Futures and move on to other areas. And it was suggested to me that I should write a uh, paper describing my experience as editor of Futures for the last 13, 14 years, how the field has changed and how Futures, the general itself has changed and modified and what kind of papers we published, et cetera, et cetera. So to write this paper, I started looking back at uh, issues in the future right from uh, not just when I took over, but earlier on as well. And I looked at all varieties of futures and it became quite evident to me that a number of themes were emerging from these papers. More and more papers were talking about complexity. Yeah. Uh, you know, they were arguing that the world is becoming more complex, therefore the future itself is becoming more complex uh, and we have to do something about it. Uh, one of the most, uh, in fact, the highest cited paper ever published in Futures is Science in the Post-Normal Age by Jerry Ravitz and Sylvia Fontevich. And it talked about how science is going post-normal, how what we conventionally regarded science as truth, 
and scientific method as the method that would solve all the problem was becoming problematic, how science was being corrupted, uh, how instead of solving many of the problems of humanity, it was actually sometimes adding to the, pro to the problem to humanity, et cetera, et cetera. And the other theme that emerged, which I describe as contradictions, but what people were talking about are different diverse opinions, conflicts, you know, irreconcilable uh, behavior, technology not going uh, according to plan, et cetera, et cetera. So I kind of brought all those themes under, under contradiction. So the two themes, contradictions and complexity, then I had to, I had to tackle with. And I decided that instead of writing my, and writing a paper about how futures has changed, I will write something completely different. And that basically turned out to be welcome to post-normal times. Okay. Where the argument is that, uh, that uh, not just science, as Ravitz and Fontevich argued, is post-normal, but the world itself has now gone post-normal. That we are moving towards post-normal times where things are interconnected, uh, uncertainty is dominant, complexity is there, there are too many contradictions in society to be resolved. And as contradictions cannot be resolved, they can only be transcended. We need new ways of doing things. And in a situation where you are you are faced with the complex system, interconnected, there's bound to be a large amount of positive feedback, which means we are always on the verge of chaos. So complexity, contradiction, and chaos became the three C's of post-normal times, as I framed it. So the way I see that the future, the future is becoming more and more post-normal, by which I mean that all those things that we conventionally thought as normal, it doesn't really matter how you define normal, by the way. Mm. Traditions, religions, ideologies, political systems, governance, social behavior, all those, those things that we took for granted do not work anymore. Yep. Or if they work, they are increasingly becoming uh, less and less reliable, right? <laughs> and therefore, at the moment, we are hanging between the no longer in the, in the sense that things no longer work and not yet in yep. the sense that not, nothing has emerged to replace what doesn't work. We are coming in suspended animation. And this suspended animation is what, what we describe as, as, as post-normal times. So the future is, as far as I'm concerned, is going to be more and more post-normal. The question is, how do we understand and how do we explore that? And we now we go back to methods. One way to, uh, to appreciate is that the future is not going to be uh, unfolding uh, with a kind of a singular outlook, if you like. And we, we frame that within the three tomorrows scheme. In other words, the future is simultaneously intertwined between three tomorrows, which may or may not be distinct. The first tomorrow is simply the, the extrapolation of current trends, which, yep. which is what most popular futurists do. Even the people who talk about singularity, they are just basically extrapolating current trends. And to me, that is not really a future because it's simply the present extended. So yeah. we, we call the first tomorrow extended present rather than the future itself. And the second tomorrow, the second future, uh, is what we call familiar future because that is based on all the existing metaphor uh, images uh, that we, we imbibe, that, that, that we inherit, uh, you know, that are all around us and we move within them. 
images and metaphors, which by the way, CLA is very good at deconstructing. And the third tomorrow, we, we call the unthought. And the unthought is not the unthinkable, it's an unthought in sense that it's a totally new paradigm we have not yet entered. Yep. So we don't really know what it will look like. Uh, this, I think it reminds me of, a, of, I don't know, was it William Gibson, the science fiction writer who said that uh, it is easy for us to imagine the end of the world, but impossible to imagine the end of capitalism. <laughs> I can't remember, but anyway, I, th- I think I, I, it is so accurate. And this is what we really mean by, by unthought, that our basic assumptions and principles which we operate at this moment do not allow us to think the unthought. So the future then is amalgam of these three tomorrows. Yeah. Right? It's in some places, we simply see the first tomorrow is the dominant theme. In other places, we see the familiar uh, tomorrow also interacting, and the unthought has not really, you know, emerged. Uh, and but sometimes the unthought can also emerge as totally what we may call, for the want of a better word, we call it a black jellyfish as a black jellyfish event or phenomenon. There's something that blooms suddenly and becomes chaotic. Yeah. So as Jim Data, when he talks about the Manoa School and its four sort of archetypical yeah. images of the future, they, of course, yeah. have continuation, which I guess is your first future. Yes. Then they have these three distinctly different futures, collapse, constraint, yes. or transformation. You would put those into the second type of future because they these are all familiar. These yes. are all familiar futures for yes. us in in that yes. sense. Yeah. And inside yeah. those and inside those futures, there are contradictions. There are contradictions, indeed. Uh, there are contradictions. There and there's a lot of complexity, and therefore uh, these futures could be very chaotic. And some of the chaos could lead to unthought in the sense that sometimes collapse, you know, generates totally new ideas. Yes. Yes. And in this in this view of the future, I mean, how do you do you use the normative future or the desired future? Is that within that? In other words, is the desired future potentially all three of the futures that you talked about? Well, you see, desired futures then brings us to the question of agency. And the function for me, of any futures exploration is at the end, provide agencies to individuals and communities to shape their own future. So we have, we, we have a little, little problem. The problem is that the way we see the future unfolding is very complex, very com- contradictory and very chaotic, which is not the conventional notion of how the future unfolds. It's not what the, the future studies has been all about for the last 30, 40 years. So we are trying to present, we are trying to argue that the future has now been totally transformed. That's the first thing. So it, things are much more complex. So how do you actually shape desirable futures within this uh, perspective? Now, that's a very key question. Otherwise, there's no point doing future studies. And one, one would argue that you have to learn to deal with complexity. Unless you know how complexity functions, unless you realize that there are no answers or that in a complex situation, there's no cause and effect, uh, you are not going to go forward. 
you have to realize that contradictions cannot be resolved. This is, for example, why we have Brexit. Yeah. Right? The, the, the country is totally divided between two opposing views, which cannot be reconciled in any way whatsoever. Yesterday, The Guardian carried uh, an article with the title, This is not normal. <laughs> right? Of course, it is not normal. The question now is, how do you, what do you do about these two contradictions? That the only way to uh, deal with them is to transcend them. Yeah. Right? And, and that means coming together. Right? You know, that means engaging in polylog. Uh, uh, it's a totally kind of different, different uh, exercise. And also to actually move away from the conventional answers, the one-dimensional linear answers to a more kind of multi-dimensional uh, the explorations. So in, in general, when we are talking about post-normal times, we never say that there are solutions to problems. There are only ways of navigating through problems. Yeah. And, and obviously, go on, I was going to say, obviously institutions have found post-normal times terribly difficult because, because people now have no faith in institutions. People have no faith in institutions. This is because in institutions are offering one-dimensional answers. Yeah. You see, as we proceed towards the future, one-dimensional answers will become less and less relevant, and eventually, you know, they will be totally irrelevant, right? And we'll have to learn to deal with complexity. We'll have to learn to deal with uncertainty. We have to learn to deal with interconnections. How? I mean, for example, people are perplexed by social media. It's supposed to do us a lot of good, but it has brought us a lot of lot of things that are pretty harmful to society. Yeah. And we have to realize that never in the history of humanity, one individual could connect with millions in an mm. instant, a click. And there you are, you're connected to millions. Now that's an incredible amount of power. Yeah. Right? And that can be used for good and bad purposes. When I, when I was looking at Arab Spring and I used the post number times to analyze it, I argued that social media and the kind of chaos it created played a very important in Arab Spring. Yes. And the success of the Arab Spring was due to the fact that the authorities did not know how to, how to deal with a complex, emerging complex situation that was rapidly going, becoming chaos. But I also argued that the authorities could use the same method against the protesters. Yes. Which, in fact, what happened two years later. Right. You know, the, the military came back. And they created their own chaos with their using exactly the same tools, social media, uh, bringing in you know, protesters, those protesters creating chaos. Then eventually they succeeded in demolishing democracy and replacing it you know, with, the, with the military ruler in Egypt. So we, do, we, we need to appreciate that complexity and chaos that are so dominant in today's world demand a different way of thinking which then brings us to desirable futures. So what, does, what do we desire, right? Uh, in a sense, what we desire has to be much more collective, yeah. right? Rather than individuals, individualistic. Yeah. Wendell Bell right. said that all images of the future are morally based, meaning yeah. what he said all, was all normative images of the future. Yeah. In, I agree with you. So now the desire has to be based on virtues to a certain extent. The only way to navigate post-normal times are, are classical virtues, you know, whether they come from religion or they come from philosophy, it doesn't really matter. All virtues, you know, patience, forgiveness, embracing the other, all those kind of basic virtues, compassion, 
they are the only tools we really have to basically navigate post-normal times. Apart from understanding what complexity is all about, apart from learning to live with certain amount of uncertainty, apart from appreciating the fact that things can multiply in geometric fashion and therefore become chaotic. So to, we need to learn how, not, how to avoid chaos, uh, all these things. So desire here is not the old-fashioned desire of Western civilization, namely the individual should have, a, you know, be happy, as many material goods as possible. You should have a house, you know, you should have, have two cars and a wife and 2.4 kids and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So this actually brings us to the notion of familiar futures. Familiar futures create desires for us and they're shaped by the desires that the metaphors and images of the futures uh, have imbibed in, in us. So we need to change our desires as well, in a sense. And we need to realize that now individuals as well as communities have immense power, both for improvement and for destruction. Yeah. Uh, it only took a couple of uh, rogue bankers to bring the whole banking system down. Uh, you know, it only takes one tweet for you to leave, to lose your job that you may have had for 20 years. Yeah. Takes one slip uh, for a politician to, to completely lose his reputation. Yeah, or, so some, this, or, or something he did when he was 18 years old and put on Facebook. And so I mean, we, we, we are in a, in, a, in a totally different world and, and the map has changed, you see. And the way to, the way to appreciate the difference is to uh, open an atlas and look at a page of the atlas, <laughs> right? And the two-dimensional map and then look at Google map. Yeah. You see, and see the, the, the profound difference between the two. Now, somehow we have to move from that atlas. We still function as though we live in a two-dimensional world. Mm. We need to move from that atlas to the Google map world and appreciate how we can navigate that towards a positive, desirable futures. There's also that famous line that with the astronauts who saw Earth as the blue ball in space and that, yes. that viewpoint where they didn't see the boundaries and they didn't see the lines. I just saw the yes, single famous, the famous Earthrise picture, which transformed our understanding of our planet. Yes. Yeah. In a sense, we are on the same cusp, but the, the post-normal times hasn't produced an image that can be so transformative. There's so many different things happening. I think one of the things that, that you ask people is, uh, what do you say to those who do not understand what you do? Yeah. Actually, this was a question, for, as far as I'm concerned, for 1980s and 90s, 90s, when I was trying to convince uh, Muslim universities, Muslim countries, Muslim communities to engage with futures. And they will always say, well, we've got so many problems at the moment. Why do we have to bother about the future? Right? Just help us you know, solve our current crisis. Today, they, they are desperate to find out what's going on and how the future is transforming. Yeah. It is very easy for me today to convince people that futures is very, very important. And, uh, and I don't even have to say much about post-normal times. They will come and tell me that things are changing so rapidly. Things are becoming so chaotic. They're becoming so complex. What do we do? Right. How do we how do we get out of this? Right. 
And the first thing I say, look, we are not getting out of this because we are it. Yeah. This is it. This is it. This is us. This is us. So the question now is how do we navigate? And one of the ways to navigate is to explore the future and we move forward. But in this in the 80s and 90s, you know, when you talked about the future, people people just kind of looked at you as though you were from Mars or somewhere. You know, what's so important about the future? It was very, very difficult. And the way I used to do it, I remember in the 80s, I was trying to convince somebody that future studies is important. And he said, no, 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 no. There's, there's, there's nothing in my life that relates to the future. And I said, have you got insurance? Yes, I have insurance. I said, well, why do you have insurance? <laughs> you have insurance because you think something unexpected may happen in the future and you want to minimize that risk of that thing happening or having resources so you can deal with you know that unexpected thing. That's the very future-oriented activity. Now let's step back and look at your life in general uh, and see how many unexpected can happen in your in your own life in terms of your career. And then take another step back and look at your community and the nation. Uh, so that's how I used to do it. And uh, eventually I managed to convince lots of people. In fact, I developed a theory, insurance, insecurity, and the insanity index. And I argued that the more insecurity you have, the more insurance you need right yep. and and higher your insanity index yep. and, and therefore if you want to lower your in, insanity index you need to have some understanding of how the future will unfold so that's the kind of argument i used to present it, it had lots of humorous elements in it yes. and and witty lines so i could make them laugh and convince them of the importance so well it, well certainly the insurance industry um and certainly the reinsurance industry they fully understand future risk if you look at what they've been doing over the last 10 or so years. Yes, yes, indeed. The, the interesting thing is that as the world becomes more complex and more uncertain, what actually happens to insurance? Yeah. What level of uncertainty taking out insurance becomes totally irrelevant? Yeah. And what level of certainty the insurance companies need to make a large amount of profit? Yeah. So this is why all this big data is coming in, becoming very important because using big data they can get a reasonably good profile of a person and develop risk assessment for it so i think the yeah. nature of future uh, nature of sorry, insurance itself will change yeah. quite a lot there will be a certain aspects of post normal times where insurance will be totally irrelevant and nobody will bother and at the same time insurance companies will, will seek certainty for example in trying to get your genetic imprints you know if you've got a odd gene that has a potential of producing some disease, you know, they will say, right, you're out. We are not giving you insurance. That's kind of a Gattaca future, isn't it? Yeah, that's the Gattaca future, indeed. Okay, so we'll get to the last question, Zia. One of the things that I do want to talk about is the, the Center for Post-Normal Policy and Future Studies. Okay. The center emerged around 2011. That's almost a year after my paper, Welcome to Post-Normal Times, was published. And some of my colleagues in the futures community produced what I would regard as thought-provoking criticism. One of the issues was, what is normal? So I, I had to spend a lot of time thinking about what is normal. I came to the conclusion it was totally not worthwhile thinking about it because no matter how you define normal, you can always uh, show that situation at the moment is post-normal. No matter where you start your normalcy from, where we are now is unique in, in the history of humanity. 
there's so many reasons why this is so. So there are lots of comments and criticism which then forced me to not so much revise the thesis, but kind of revisit it. So I wrote a second paper, post normal times, revisited. And then I met uh, certain friends. One of the first persons I met was uh, John Sweeney, who is now teaching in Kazakhstan. Uh, and John understood the theory and we talked about it a lot, had a lot of discussion. And my friend Jody Serra, the Spanish futurist. So the three of us got together and we, we met first in London and then in Chicago, where uh, I persuaded a, a private university called East West University to provide us a space and little money to do our work. So in fact, Jody and John basically and I, we worked more or less day and night to try and develop the post-normal time theory, which to my mind now is pretty sophisticated and quite highly developed. So eventually I, I persuaded the International Institute of Islamic Thought or IIIT, which is based in uh, Herndon near Virginia, in the United States, yep. uh, that our work both in futures field and in post-normal times is very, very important. IIIT is very famous for developing the Islamization of knowledge thesis. Mm -hmm. And for the last uh, 30 years, virtually from 1970s to 2000 and may I say 14, 15, they had been promoting Islamization knowledge throughout the Muslim world. They established universities, the textbooks, and what have you. And Islamization of knowledge thesis is pretty simple. It basically says that as knowledge is produced in the West, it actually promotes Western worldview and it is deeply Eurocentric. And yep. therefore, if Muslim societies are going to progress, they will have to Islamize knowledge. In other words, they will have to bring in Islamic values within the, the knowledge system. And during all that time that Islamization of knowledge was being promoted, I was the only critic of Islamization of knowledge. <laughs> and, my, and my criticism was that you cannot Islamize knowledge. Uh, essentially, you know, disciplines emerge from a particular cultural milieu, right? And they deflect that culture and they grow and develop out of that particular culture. Yeah. So anthropology, for example, developed to actually manage and control the non-Western people. That was the function of uh, anthropology. And despite the fact that in contemporary times, you've had all different kinds of anthropology. We've had post-normal anthropology, we've had radical anthropology, we have anticipatory anthropology. The fact remains that the function of anthropology is more or less the same, yep. um, no matter how you kind of redefine it, because it emerged from a particular culture. So disciplines have to be rooted within the culture in which they, they emerge. My argument was, it is not that we need Islamization of knowledge, but we need knowledge that is produced originally within Muslim societies for Muslim societies. Yes. That was the argument. So I managed to persuade them. And one, one of the reasons I managed to persuade them is that they came to realize that my Christian Islamization knowledge was correct, <laughs> right? And that the project had failed despite the vast resources they had spent on it. So now the center is funded by IIIT who basically now actually believe in future studies and they, they really understand post-normal times theory. They, they can see what's going on in the world. And one of the things that the center does for IIIT is that we organize workshops in various places like Istanbul, Sarajevo, Kuala Lumpur and, and London, uh, where we teach futures literacy, 
the futures methodology and the post normal times theory. Yep. Basically, I believe that it is the younger generation who are going to actually move towards the unthought. Yep. That if, for example, you are too deeply entrenched in your discipline and you've been researching and teaching it for the last 30, 50 years, it is not easy for you to suddenly announce that all the principles and basic exams and the methods you've been using are now becoming irrelevant. Because essentially what you're doing is you're writing yourself off. Yep. And this is why there is so much resistance in the academia, in the established fields about new ideas, uh, the, especially if the ideas come from outside their discipline. So I believe that we ought to focus on younger scholars, you know, in their 30s, 50s, who are either beginning their PhDs or finish their PhDs and are thinking of what research to do. So we concentrate on younger scholars and we bring them to these workshops. And that's essentially what the center has been doing. We've been doing workshops uh, around the Muslim world. We've been working on uh, post-normal times theory. And slowly, the center has developed into a kind of network. So we have fellows and senior fellows. And these are some new people, but also some of, our, some of the old colleagues. For example, Chris Jones. Chris yep. Jones wrote to me, old futurist, member of the World Futures Association. Is general secretary of the federation. So suddenly out of the blue, I got an email from him saying, I just read Welcome to Post Normal Times and Post Normal Times revisited and it just it sings with me. I, you know, I, I understand everything. You know, this makes sense to me. Yeah. So we've had people like Chris and Maya Van Lumpet, another future friend, Jody Sarah, all of us, and uh, we've kind of developed into a network. Uh, Hopefully this this is this year for the first time we are going to meet as a complete the whole group is going to meet in in Kuala Lumpur in a couple of months see how we go forward. Uh, actually, we've been ex uh, as a kind of loose network. We were mm -hmm. in existence for four or five years, but for the last three or four years we kind of gelling together as a, as a center. So I'm going to wrap this, Zia. Thank you very much for taking time out to talk to Pleasure. the FuturePod community. Thank you very much, Peter. I think we need things like FuturePod, perhaps more and more now, because the future is, as I said, the future is becoming more complex, more, more chaotic. And therefore, there's more. Uh, it is more necessary for us to continuously talk, debate, and, and discuss where we as futurists are going, do we still make sense? And at the end of the day, who benefits from what we do? <laughs> uh, my own answer would be that we should try and benefit uh, marginalized communities, minorities, yep. those who are without voice, uh, which in fact is essentially what we are trying to do in the Center for Personal yep. Policy and Future Studies. We actually describe ourselves as, as a, a network that works for marginalized communities. Yes. Here, here. I mean, I've got a view that the existing future that is projected or the existing present that is projected into the future is about maintaining privileged for those who have it and excluding from that people who don't. Absolutely. 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 One of my key beliefs is that the unthought will emerge from the margins and not from the center. Yeah. The center uh, wants to preserve 
the thought processes that exist today, the, the dominant paradigms that exist today. Uh, so the unthought, the genuine alternative futures will emerge from the margins. It's interesting. One of our guests made, the, I think, the quite pithy observation that as the women argued for the franchise and argued in the 18th century, you know, 19th century, mm. then you know, the young now are the women of the 21st century. You know, the young are getting increasingly unwilling to wait for adults and everything from Extinction Rebellion to kids walking out of school to Greta Thunberg. Yes. And I think to some extent the young are starting to think of the unimagined future. Yes, but also the young do feel as though they are marginalised because they are inheriting a world that is in a total mess. And, And they can see that. They know that cause of this is the elder generation. Yeah. It is their thought, their thinking, their actions, their behaviors, their beliefs that have produced the world that they are inheriting. So more and more they're concerned and more and more they're going out protesting and, and demanding change. Yes. Yeah, I think yeah. it was Robert Jung who said that the young carry old men's futures. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> Indeed. I mean, this is the main point for me. The older generation of uh, futurists study how things change. And increasingly, the young generations want to change things. Yes. This has been another production from FuturePod. FuturePod is a not-for-profit venture. We exist through the generosity of our supporters. If you would like to support FuturePod, go to the Patreon link on our website. Thank you for listening. Remember to follow us on Instagram and Facebook. This is Peter Hayward saying goodbye for now.